Another episode of Moped Outlaws. Today, our very special guest is God. <laughs> he has been masquerading as Aaron Wilker and Mark Went and Greg for a while. But um, no, seriously, folks, uh, we were just joking around. Uh, yeah, so I'm super excited to hear uh, about Aaron's adventure. And some of what we're going to talk about is this little thing he did on the ocean, but most of what we're going to talk about is how hard it was growing up with Greg. <laughs> we don't have time for that. <laughs> It'll be a part five. <laughs> Actually, um, one of the amazing things that Aaron has recently completed is the Transpac race from California to Hawaii. And as I was reading about that today, I was looking at the videos and reading the list of how people finished. And it was, you know, there's multiple classes and it was really hard to kind of figure out who the winner was. And so I'm hoping before we get into like your personal experience about the race, Aaron, we could talk a little bit about how the structure of the race works and how you determine which class you're in and who the winners of the various classes were. Okay, so... Transpac, there's divisions and classes. And so everybody understands it is a race from Long Beach, California, off of Point Furman is the starting point, to Diamond Head, uh, just off, you know, Honolulu, Hawaii. It's a sailboat race. No power allowed at all. No autopilots allowed at all. Um, somebody is steering the boat all the time. Wow. Yeah, and trimming the sails. Trimming the sails, right. So within the race, there are, eight, wow. there are eight or nine divisions, and then within the divisions are different classes. So we were division eight, um, which was the slowest division. We started first on June 27th, and the expectation was that the other divisions would catch up with us as they started two days and then um, four days after us. So we're looking at Division 8 right now. Which boat were you on? So Division 8... Uh, Imagine two. Got it. So, if you know anything about sailboats, Catalina 445 is a blue water cruising boat. It should never be associated with racing in any way, period. It is a cruising boat. It was very comfortable. But, but not I should also, I think it's worth noting. That if you look at this division, half the boats dropped out of the race in your division. So just the fact that you guys finished is to be celebrated. 
Um, what we're right. seeing on the screen for those of you, I'm sorry, go ahead, Aaron. No, go ahead. What so, we're seeing on the so screen. Like Juno, uh, sorry, so Juno, who finished first, the skipper, Dan um, Moreno, this was his fifth trans pack. He's, he's done the race five times now. And Juno is a sleek uh, boat. He had experienced people that have done Transpac before on his boat. I think only one or two people out of his crew had never done the Transpac before. On our and boat. what about our sweet, boat? Yeah, but what about um, Dean's boat? The FAR 36. I don't know too much about Dean. Um, the FAR 36, again, is a sleeker, faster boat. Um, I don't know about his crew. I know Dan because his parents are members at the same yacht club that I'm a member of. Okay. And actually spoke with them last night uh, at the yacht club. So I want to ask, ask another question. As we're yeah. looking at this particular um, list, there's two columns to the right. One is the actual time and then the adjusted time. And sure. what we see for actual time for Juno, who won this particular uh, Division 8 section, 12 days, 16 hours, 38 minutes, and 7 seconds, but then adjusted to 9 days, 10 hours, 16 minutes, and 59 seconds. Why are those adjustments there? What, what's the reality behind those adjustments? So just like in golf or bowling, it's a handicap, right? So the handicap um, of the boat uh, before the race, a Transpac official comes down and does a survey on the boat, figures out you know, where you fit in on ORR, um, and don't ask me what that stands for. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it's a form of grading the different styles of boats to kind of make it a competition, even correct. if you're a cruiser as opposed to a racer. Correct. So if you look at our adjusted time, we finished in just under 17 days. But our adjusted time was 12 days. Got it. Which was enough to make you 48th overall. Is that correct? Correct. correct. Out of so like if we look at this right-hand column – we go all the way down and we find out that the Orion the, from the USA2 won the race with an actual elapsed time of four days and 17 hours, but in a corrected time of eight hour, eight days, 23. So they sailed it in four days. They are a mod. So they left Saturday, July 1st. Yep. And they are Arrived. a mod, Right. So they are a trimaran, a racing trimaran um nobody sleeps on that boat for four or five days and yeah they were doing 20 plus knots an hour and yeah they they were and, and so that people understand um 20 knots the container ships and the oil tankers that trans you know the pacific ocean they're doing 21 knots an hour. They're doing, you know, 26, 27 knots an hour. And these 
small trimarans, and they're not that small comparatively, but yeah, these these boats are flying through the water. Damn. Yeah, I saw so that the one who won, like it had left the island bef- like three days before you guys even got there. They were on their way to something else. Yeah, because there was a hurricane blowing in and everybody wanted to get out before the hurricane showed up. Out in Hawaii? In Hawaii. Yeah, there's Did that a affect you guys? Um didn't affect me because I left the Monday night before it hit. The uh, boat the boat Imagine Two is still in Honolulu, having repairs done on it, getting ready to be sailed back to Long Beach. But to go back to the leaderboard, the difference between USA 02 and Italian 55, the one and two finishers, right. was a matter of appears like four minutes. Like yeah. that's how heavy duty this was. This was a race from California to Hawaii, and the winner won by four minutes. Cool. That's intense. Yeah, yeah. That 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 is trimming a sail correctly or incorrectly. All right, so here's another question I have for you. Um, if uh, I noticed on your, because I was tracking you every day, like probably three times a day, and I noticed that you guys are keeping a pretty solid line west, but all of a sudden there's one point where, like, they have the line going from Long Beach to Honolulu. Like, that's the, okay. Rum line. That's a rum line. You guys were far north of it. And you started going about halfway through the race. You guys started going southwest hard, far more than any other boat went. Like, you guys, that was almost over a day in that direction. So what was the story behind that course correction? And why so extreme? Okay, so to start the race, we had a weather expert forecast the weather for us. Um, And based on his forecasts, we had waypoints that we were sailing to, right? Um, And I was the navigator on the boat. So I had a paper chart and we had electronic charts and I would always match the two to make sure we were synced so that whatever who was ever at the helm was seeing what we wanted them to see. They were steering to what we wanted them to steer. The beautiful thing about sailing is plans are great. <laughs> and then the weather says, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna shift the wind on you. Um and the Catalina four four five is a heavy boat. It doesn't do too well in really light wind. So our forecast was stay north because we're going to have better winds. And then as we got further west, the winds were shifting from the northeast to directly out of the east and even southeast. And to make take advantage of that, we went south um, and southwest more to get and make just a straight run, try to make a straight run into Hawaii, understanding that a run is the slowest point of sail that you can have on a sailboat. 
when the wind is directly behind you, you are at your slowest in a sailboat, generally speaking. So one of the things that I I read about today is that there's basically three phases of weather and sea conditions in the Transpac race. The first is to get the trades to pull you out to the, the, the middle point. And then the middle point, you have this swell that moves uh, west across Ho- the plain to Hawaii, and you are basically surf sailing during that second piece. And then the third phase is where you meet headwinds that are coming off the, the, the course from the islands. And so there's a lot of tacking, zigzagging back and forth to make use of those. Is that accurate? And, it's, and how did it go for you at each of those phases? Okay, so the first third of the race, um, we had winds coming at us and a beam of us, right? So, you know, sailboat and the winds were coming like this. And right, we were at our fastest probably at that time. Um, We probably had too much sail up so that we were heeled over um, more than 30 degrees, which is slow. We, we should have been up a little bit more, which would have been faster. Um, swells in that beginning, um, anywhere from 10 to 16 feet. Oh, wow. So, so we were surfing. I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a beach bum. Um, I'm not a sailor. Uh, I just love the ocean. I was surfing the waves in a 45 foot sailboat. Absolutely. Um, somebody asked me last night, what was the fastest we ever did and for how long? So the Catalina 445 has a hull speed. So it's rated, it will do about eight or nine knots. Nine is blowing, right? Eight knots, it does about eight knots. The fastest I saw that we did was about 10 knots, about five seconds, that it took us to go down the face of a wave. <laughs> wow. I, so let's say you guys were all amateurs, right? No one had raced before. Is that correct? Uh, any racing we had done was within Long Beach like area. Like harbor races. Right. Harbor races. The longest race we had done together was Newport Beach to Ensenada, Mexico. Right, so that um, was the we test had absolute, Yeah, we had absolutely zero wind on that race. That right. race was zero. <laughs> so you guys have this amateur crew, and you're starting off in basically storm conditions. How did the crew fare with that challenge right at the beginning? Okay, so seven crew members. The owner, who's 71 or 72, his wife, who is 69, and then five of us crew members. Um, Out of the seven, only three people did not get seasick. The owner's wife did not get seasick. Their 43-year-old son did not get seasick. And the newest member of our crew, who was a former Coast Guard pilot, did not get seasick. The rest of us for two to three days, we were seasick. Our medic, who was a nurse, um, he was seasick for like five days. 
And we were asking him, can you give yourself an IV? Because he was so dehydrated. God. Yeah, he he was just like, can we turn back? (laughs) And after five days, getting him electrolytes, getting him some saltine crackers, um, he finally leveled out and was like, okay, you know, this is great. This is great. But the first five days were miserable for him. Fuck. Okay, so that sounds like one of the biggest challenges you guys had to finish the race. You've got a key crew member saying, I can't do this. Turn back. Yeah, I mean, and he never said that. He never said that, but he was thinking it. Okay. So you had mentioned, like, how comfortable are you with naming names as we get into some of the challenges? Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable. All right. It's, so, it's true. It's real. All right. So you had mentioned how the chef of the crew um, had you like when you guys would start to go fast in practice runs and stuff, this individual would get on edge and like, hey, slow down. What the hell's going on? How okay, did that so, person? Right, so, so to be fair, um, Robin, the owner's wife, right? She was going to be our cook. She was going to do dinners for us. She had pre-cooked quiches and things like that for breakfast that we could just grab and warm up. Um, She doesn't like the starts of the race, so she'll go down below and not watch the chaotic Um tacking back and forth, trying to position yourself at the beginning of the race. Um, She, you know, would, and and I never saw it, but I heard, you know, like if Larry, the owner, would go too fast, like to Catalina or something like that, she'd get on his case going, hey, Larry, you know, even it out a little bit. On this race, she was a trooper. She she didn't say that. I mean, everybody at the Yacht Club probably expected her to say that. She never. Um, the fact that she did not get seasick is amazing because she would spend most of her days up in the V-berth, the very bow of the boat, reading her books or listening to her audiobooks. While we were either sleeping or, you know, controlling the sailboat, she was a trooper, man. She was fantastic. Damn, yeah, that's wild. Uh, and you had mentioned uh, that uh, crew member that has the same name as myself also seems to have one of the character traits of myself, which we experienced right before we started recording, an adversity to um, being told what to do. <laughs> right. So, yeah, his name was Greg. He's a former Coast Guard rescue pilot, um, according to him. And who am I to dispute that? Um, I will tell you that, you know, the only issue Robin had is that the very first night, he emptied out her freezer and refrigerator and repacked it. Um, and she couldn't find any of the food she wanted. He took over the cooking. You know, she would come out to cook, and he's halfway through making something out of 
whatever. Um, we honestly believe, and our nurse, Tony, was like, yeah. I was, you know, because Tony and I would talk, we'd be on watch together. And I was just like, dude, bipolar. He goes, Aaron, manic bipolar. Mm -hmm. um, to, and, and I don't want to put Greg down. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot about safety and securing a boat from him. Um, but Tony typed into chat G, GPT, 17 days on a boat with somebody that's manic bipolar. And everything AI came up with, we experienced. Wow. Two, it was like one of us had typed in chat GPT. This is what it'd be like to be on a boat with somebody manic bipolar. It was, so it made it an interesting experience. You know, which personality are you talking with or dealing with at that time? Um, the last third of the race, Mark, where the winds were behind us, the current is going east to west. So you're making almost a dead run to Hawaii. Greg was convinced that we needed to tack north because there was a two-knot current coming against us out of the west. And I tried to explain to him several times that the current is a consistent thing. The current moves east to west in that part of the ocean, right? There's no way possible there's a two-knot current coming against us because the current comes out of the east, not the west. He's like, there's a current coming against us. We got to attack them. Well, great. Unless the world has reversed its axis, you know, the spinning or the North Pole and the South Pole have switched, the current's not coming against us. Well, it's because his perception of more water running along the waterline felt like the current was moving against. And what he was actually perceiving is the boat moving quicker through time space. Well, Which, what he thought was this little purple thing on the electronic chart that showed a current. And because it was at the front of the bow of the boat, he thought we had a current coming against the bow of the boat. But it was actually a two-knot uh, current moving you that way. Right. Got it. Right. right. And, and that helped with some of our decisions. You know, which sail were we going to use? Um, I imagine I, at that state you were doing a lot of spinnaker. <laughs> we, so we had an asymmetrical spinnaker, and the answer was yes. What's until, asymmetrical spinnaker mean? Uh, so an asymmetrical spinnaker is smaller than a full spinnaker. Um, on the Catalina, a full spinnaker would have been a lot of work, uh, especially for a bunch of amateurs. Uh, where the asymmetrical was easier for us to handle. Um, the wind, we could deal with the wind at different angles and still maintain an eight-knot speed. Um, so funny story, we have the spinnaker up, the asymmetrical spinnaker flying. We are using it. And once we got past the first third of the race, Greg 
through a line out the back of the sailboat with a lure on it. Um, he lost three of Larry's lures, but continued to fish off the back of the sailboat. And we're like, you're not going to catch anything. We're flying the spinnaker. The line gets hit. He pulls in a mahi-mahi. He caught a mahi-mahi. I'm taking his picture with the mahi-mahi. I'm going, well, you know, it's a little smaller. Let's throw it back. We throw it back. No sooner we throw it back, we hear this snap. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. We, we lost you. So you hear a snap. Right. So we hear a snap, and we look, and the spinnaker is now floating down, coming to the end of the ocean on the side of the sailboat. So the people down below hear, Oh, no, all hands on deck <laughs> because we had to get the spinnaker so out of the water, out of the water. The line that holds the spinnaker up, the halyard, the spinnaker halyard snapped at the very top of the mast and we lost our spinnaker. Yeah, and there was we were, no going back from that until you got to port. Right. Right. I mean, Unless we, someone we, wanted we, to climb the mast in open seas, which not recommended. Right. Well, and, and we had a backup halyard, but it was lower than the jib halyard, and we couldn't fly the spinnaker lower than the jib. Right. What's the point? So we just flew the, we raised the jib and went wing to wing um, with the main on one side, the jib on the other side. And we had a whisker pole. So we put the whisker pole out on the jib, holding that in place. At the end of the race, we we couldn't use the whisker pole. I think we were two days out from Hawaii. We had to take down the whisker pole because we were going to reverse the sail. So going, we have our jib, we have our main. Um, two days out, with the wind shift and whatnot, we decided to change you know, main jib. Well, as we're doing this, Greg looks at the whisker pole and goes, oh, stop. No, we're not doing this. Because the end of the whisker pole at the mast should have been like this. It was like this. Mm. We had crushed the end of the whisker pole. So we couldn't use the whisker pole. Um so at that point, the decision was made, okay, we have enough wind. With just the main sail, we are doing between five and six knots. Let's just run on the main. So we took everything down and just went in on the main. The very end, just for photo opportunities, as we passed the finish line in Diamond Head, we had the jib up. <laughs> but it really didn't matter. So talk about the change in your mentality or your spiritual awareness of what it means to be a human. As you leave port, you get out on the ocean, there's a shift that happens in the consciousness, right? There's a transformation that occurs in your relationship to the universe. What was that like for you? Okay, so so we all understand something. Um, I think of myself as a power boater, right? I'm not a sailor. I don't understand sailing. I don't sail. I throw me in a powerboat 
and I'll take you anywhere you want to go. On a sailboat, I am a crew member. You tell me what to do, and I know what to do, and I'll do it for you. Um, I am a firm believer in God, and the ocean has always been my church. So I just spent 17 days in the cathedral, <laughs> right? Um, every meal and before going to sleep every shift, I had three shifts on watch, therefore three shifts off watch, four hours each, right? Four hours on, four hours off. So it didn't matter what time of day, if I was off shift, I was trying to grab an hour and a half or two hours of sleep. So before every meal and before every time I tried to sleep, I would say prayers to God, thanking him for the opportunity and the blessing um, of getting to participate in this race, getting us to Hawaii safely and expediently. Um, absolutely. You look at the ocean and, you know, we didn't have sunshine. We didn't have stars for like the first 15 days or 14 days. We never saw the sun. We never saw stars trying to navigate at night with pure black. <laughs> um, you know, you're looking at equipment trying to hold steady and it's not easy. It's not easy to do, especially in 10 foot swells. Um, with 22 knot gusts of wind coming at you. Um, the boat got beat up and yeah, you know, the first sunset that I saw after the start of the race was just beautiful. It was this gold and the sun shining down through the clouds. And I was like, yep, there's the Lord telling me it's going to be okay. We're going to make it. We're all right. Um, thought about my parents quite a bit um, on the race. Um, and at some point, before we lost the spinnaker, um, the spinnaker could only handle winds up to 18 knots. Anything over 18 knots, we increase the chances of blowing out the spinnaker, ripping the spinnaker. So at night, the winds would increase and we'd get 20 to 22 gusts, you know, not gusts or even a 25 knot gust. So one evening, we're dropping the spinnaker and raising the jib. In the beginning of the race, especially when we're all seasick. I'm like, what is a power boater doing here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? On, uh, sorry about that. Doing, you know, here in the middle of the ocean on a sailboat. What is a power boater doing? Why am I doing this, right? So at least 10 days in, we're dropping the spinnaker. It's nighttime. We're dropping the spin. We're throwing up the jib. And I am up in the cockpit just, you know, opening clutches, pulling lines, dropping the line, locking the clutch, grabbing another line, putting it on the winch. 
and we're all done. It's all, you know, good. We're moving along. And Tony, the nurse, the youngest member of the crew, looks at me and goes, I don't want to hear any more shit about being a power boater. You're a sailor. I went, do not call me a Cam. I'm a sailor. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so I am now comfortable. Give me a boat. Give me an ocean. Give me a lake. I'm comfortable. Let's go. Um, it's It's been a great transition. Um, thought about the people that have supported me in this transition part of my life. Um, thankful for them, my brother, my sisters, um, you know, partner Grace, the, these people, the people I've met since um, beginning this boating experience back in 2020. Um, yeah, it, it definitely. Can I just throw that out there? Like you started marining seriously three years ago as a total amateur, no idea about boating. Three years later, you're doing one of the most challenging yacht races in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People thought I was crazy. They didn't, there are people that were betting against us. And, um, even last night we were at the yacht club and some people were talking trash because it took us, you know, almost 17 days. And we're just like, yeah, but in our class, five boats started and only two of them finished. And we were one of the two with pure amateurs. The other boat that finished in our class had done the trans pack two other times. They didn't finish their first race in 2019. And then they did a 2021 and then they came in first, you know, in our class, um, this, this race. Um, so we got third in our division because only three boats finished out of the eight. We got second in our class because only two boats out of the five finished. And we got the oldest average crew for the entire race. We were the oldest average crew. And we were all amateurs, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I want to return to the question I asked you a minute ago because I'm not happy with the answer. I mean, your answer was great, but there's something I'm digging for. Okay. So there's this relationship you have to the world around you as you're, you know, living in a home, going to training, practice runs, getting prepped. And then you step off the, the dock and on the boat and your awareness of the way the world works, your awareness of your relationship to the, to your surroundings and your perception of the world begins to shift as you lose sight of land and you're just this infinitesimally small nothing on the sea. So I'm wondering how you would describe the shift in your consciousness from like day one through day eight, you know, what, what's happening that at day eight that's different. Um. <laughs> So honestly, day eight is just trying not to push Greg off the boat. Um, spiritually, Mark, I was always there. I, like I said, for me, I go body surfing and I thank the creator for allowing me to be in church. Um, the ocean is absolutely my cathedral. It is my spiritual place. Um, the mountains 
maybe, but the ocean has always been for me, my temple, my church. So I said every day I knew we were going to be okay. I knew we were going to make it because the Lord hadn't showed me anything to say you're not. Um, even in heavy winds, even in a heavy surf, fighting the boat to stay straight as you're surfing down um, a wave, I knew we were safe. I knew we were okay. Um, wake up one morning and there's a small pod of pilot whales going past the boat. And it's like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. Right? Um, so for me, like I said, the spiritual shift, the spiritual spirituality was always there. Um, again, I thought a lot of my parents, at one point, I'm in the cockpit and I'm watching the bow of the boat do this. And, and down. Yeah, and what I'm thinking is, wow, I wonder if this is what it was like for everybody to be on the Don Treader from the Prince Caspian book of the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> right? That, that's yeah. what, that, honestly, that's what's running through my head. It's like, oh, I wonder if this is what it was like for everybody on the Don Treader from the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> um, and then you start thinking, it's like, my goodness, Polynesians. I mean, you know, you know and every now and then I'd sit there and go, hey, can you guys imagine being out here like this looking for whales? Yeah. Hey, I'm looking for a whale to kill. And I, you know, just no way. I, you know, I can't imagine that. Um, yeah, because, on a papyrus pontoon boat, nonetheless. Papyrus right, pontoon boat, nonetheless. Right, right. You know, the Polynesians, you know, doing that. It's just like, wow. And you, that's where you, you start thinking is like the history of sailing and the history of man traveling. You know, we had electronics, we had paper charts, we had, you know, a, a, an oven and a stove, <laughs> right? Um, one point, we ran out of water, so we started the water maker, and we filled all three tanks, <laughs> you know, on the boat with fresh water that we made out of the ocean, you know, from seawater. That's crazy. And it tasted great. <laughs> Right, so that's the you, know, you think about. So you that. had a a semi permeable desalinization plant on board the boat. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We put put a hose, ran a hose off the back of the boat, sucking salt water into the apparatus, and ran a hose up into all our freshwater tanks and filled all our freshwater tanks. Wow. Yeah. You've mentioned our parents twice that you really, they came up a lot in your thoughts. What, what was going on with that? Um, well, you know, mom had a boyfriend that she sailed with for a while. So I was thinking that mom would be pretty stoked that I was sailing and doing this race. Um, I think our father would have been happy that I took the opportunity, that the opportunity came and I took the opportunity. And I think dad would have been more happier with, to Mark's point, 
the spirituality of the voyage, um, getting more in touch with yourself and God and really learning to love everybody. Um, because like I said, there, there were times where, you know, this manic bipolar person, I would have to pull them aside and go, Hey, you know, that wasn't cool. You need to respect certain things. Um, I had a conversation with him that especially when I'm either coming off watch or I'm just waking up, he had to respect my personal space. And I had to remind him several times that when I'm tired and cranky, invading my personal space is not a good idea. <laughs> um, you know, my brother Greg can tell you when I'm tired and cranky, don't <laughs> don't push that button <laughs> unless you want the wrath to come back at you tenfold. Um, so just learning that um, small spaces, uh, you know, you're doing what's called hot bunking. You know, you're sharing a bed with somebody, you know, when they're on watch, you're in bed. When you're on watch, they're in that same bed, right? So um, water is something to be treasured, or fresh water, I should say, is something mm -hmm. to be treasured and conserved. Um, you know, Greg thought it was good to take a shower every day. And we were like, dude, <laughs> you know, got to drink water first. We need to drink water before we shower with water. Um, so, like I said, I think Robin, the owner's wife, was a trooper because she put up with six, you know, different guys and our different personalities. Um, and, you know, there would be times where she would be out and Greg would be messing around in her galley in her kitchen and I could just see her and I'd look at her I go hey Robin and she looked at me and go what Aaron I go and she just looked at me and she go okay thank you Aaron and I was like yeah you know it's okay we're good we're okay you know if that's the worst of our problems what we're great did you ever have a moment that you wanted to quit and you're out in the middle of the ocean? No, no. I said, I never wanted to quit. I wanted to throw somebody overboard. <laughs> Walk the plank. <laughs> right. Right. I, I didn't want to quit, but there were several times, especially where I'm at the helm and he would be up on the bow of the boat, checking rigging and things like that, where I'm just like, God, if I just, just, with, with the, you know, real quick, he'll go fly. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, no, never, never wanted to quit. Um, and I will tell you that starting at the start of the race, um, and even now, people tell me it's a big deal. And I didn't realize just how big of a deal it is. Um, when we landed in Honolulu, we were not allowed to leave the boat until a TransPAC inspector came on the boat and inspected certain things. Um, emergency water, you know, they had to look at our emergency water. They had 
Did we have any major injuries? Did we have any major mechanical issues? Did we, you know, certain things that they had to verify. And while they were doing that, there's people on the dock handing us Mai Tais. You know, congratulations, you made it. And they had a private party for us right across the dock um, in this little grassy area in the marina. They had it all caged off, and this is for Imagine 2. This party is for Imagine 2 and their family and friends only, right? Um, and talking to some of the Transpac officials there, they're like, that's a, you guys finished. Congratulations. That's, that's a big deal. And I didn't realize how big of a deal it is, especially for a boat where nobody has ever done the Transpac before. Um, a Catalina 445 has never done this race before. We were the first boat, Catalina 445, to ever participate and finish the Transpac. Um, so it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, I was invited to join the Transpac Yacht Club, and I and I did. I paid my dues. Um you can't join the yacht club if you don't finish the race. And from what I'm told is you can take that Transpac yacht club membership card to almost any yacht club in the world and they'll reciprocate and let you in. St. Francis is probably the exception to the rule. You know, San Francisco, St. Francis yacht club. Yeah. You have to have a, a letter from God stating you're a good person and we'll let you receive yeah, Devon American Express black card. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and even that may not work. So, um, but yeah, it is a big deal. It, and, and I'm starting to realize that. Um, I was really happy to see my partner Grace because she was not going to come to Hawaii to greet us. And she came, and to see her on the dock was fantastic. It was like, yeah, because without her support, I would have, I would never have done that race, and I would never be where I am today in my career as a mariner. Um, I would never, without her support, I would never have done that. So. Trials like this often up-level our ability as humans as we learn that the the field of fear that the mind lays out before us isn't necessarily the truth about what we're capable of. How would you say this has upped your level of play in the game of life? Okay, so, so to be fair, um, and Greg, my brother, knows this, um, the monkey mind excuse me, fucks with the person, right? You're, you're, if you let your mind get into it, um, it will prevent you from doing whatever you want. David Goggins is a great example of a person who has overcome the monkey mind. And so great knows, right, that fear creeps in and, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? Um So start two months back, friends who are sailors, 
Now, Aaron, have you bought your fell weather gear? Well, no, I haven't bought any fell weather gear. I'm not going to spend $500 for clothing that I'm going to wear once and never wear again. I'm not going to do that. Um, I referee soccer. I have sweats that I wear to and from soccer fields, right? I've refereed soccer games in Northern California where it's 38 degrees and the rain is coming at me sideways. It's just water, right? That's my mindset. It's just water and it's cold water. Okay, well, I put sweats on underneath my sweats. I have socks, I have a jacket, I have a long sleeve shirt with a long sleeve um, shirt that I wear, refereeing that's got a collar, you know, thick collar. I've got um, a hoodie. Well, not a hoodie, but um, plastic you know, bag. Well, like a, a, a scarf or something up over my ears, over my head. I'm wearing a hat. I've got my soccer jacket on which is not waterproof, but it's water resistant. It's lightweight and it's warm. I was warm. It's just water, right? And through it, I'm going, yeah, that was what I was afraid of, Mark. I was afraid of being uncomfortable and wet. And I did buy a pair of Sperry boots, which I'm sorry, Sperry, they suck. I was slipping all over the deck. Right, these are sailing boots, and I am slipping all over the deck. Um, as a matter of fact, I need to write a letter. There goes our Sperry sponsorship, right? <laughs> um, but I was afraid of being wet and cold. And once I realized, especially after that third, first third of the race, that that was not going to happen, I was like, "Boom, we've got this. This is good." You know, I'm. This isn't bad at all. So, you know, watching the videos and everything, you see these racing sailboats, like the Mod 70s, a catamaran. I cannot imagine doing that race in five days in a catamaran, you know, trimaran, because those guys are soaking wet. They're not sleeping, and they're just powering through it. I was in a blue water cruising vessel, (laughs) right? 45-foot Catalina sailboat that is a comfortable, beautiful boat heavy, not fast. Right? Right. Everybody's like, yo, it took you 17 days. Yeah, it took us 17 days. That's one day more than I expected it to take us. Because when, before the race, I plotted it out on our chart. And I had us averaging speed at six and a half knots. And at six and a half knots, I was going, it's going to take us 16 days. And if you had had your spinnaker through the whole race, do you think you would have made the time you expected? We did make the time we expected. We made it in 16 days, 23 hours. Right, right, right. And you know right. what I'm saying. Right. Well, so if we had the spinnaker right, we may have done it in 15 days. We may um, have. But I think the spinnaker would have only added like a knot and a half more than we were doing. Again, the boat is only capable of going so fast because of the vid's design. And eight knots is pretty much max for this boat. Even with just the main, not flying a jib, not flying a spinnaker, just the main, that last portion of the race, 
we were doing six to seven knots. What was Larry's incentive to enter a race that many experienced sailors would say you have no business being in? Well, a lot of experienced sailors told them that. Um, and so Robin has told Larry this is the last vacation he ever gets to plan. Um, <laughs> for vacation, we're going to do this grueling race for two weeks. <laughs> so Larry retired officially from work July 1st was his first day of retirement. We left. We started the race June 27th. Right. So Larry's plan was his dream. His bucket list was to retire and sail off into the sunset. So the plan was to get the boat over to Hawaii. And then he and Robin would spend the next month and a half cruising around the islands of Hawaii in the sailboat. Um, after the race, I think Robin said, put me on a plane. <laughs> I want to go home. Um, but that was the incentive, right? And to sail to Hawaii, just he and Robin, that's probably not feasible. Right. So enter the race. It's a bucket list thing. It is. I mean, there's a lot of people that go, man, I'd love to do the transpac. Or I tell them, yeah, I just did the transpac. They're like, oh, my goodness, you did the transpac? I'd love to do the transpac. Um, it just, yeah. Uh, and, and when we finished and we were knew we were finishing, um, I congratulated Larry you know, we gave each other big hugs and he had just had this big smile on his face because as trying as it was, and the most trying part is dealing with somebody that's manic bipolar um, and keeping the rest of the crew happy, right? It was an accomplishment, right? You know, Larry, <laughs> congratulations, dude. You just skippered a boat across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii. And from what I understand, that voyage is the most furthest you will ever be from any part of land around the world. That's what that I is, That's that, the widest that expanse of open water. Right. It is the largest expanse of open water. Yeah. So, um, and it was cool. I mean, we saw, we did see one of the other racing boats off in the horizon at one time, and we were actually talking to them on the radio. Greg was asking them if they had Grey Poupon. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll trade you a pair of Sperry boots for some Grey Poupon. Right, right, exactly. Or <laughs> a spinnaker halyard. <laughs> um, we, you know, we saw fishing boats as we got closer to. Hawaii, um, there was one evening where I was on watch, and on our chart, we got a AIS mark. You know, hey, there's a vessel that is entering your area. So I pull up the radar, and I look at our radar, and I go, boom, yep, there he is. Uh, you know, oh, check it out. 
It's a Pesha Hawaii vessel, the George III. Um, looking at it, it's like, okay, our closest point of approach is going to be two and a half miles. So they're going to be two and a half miles of us in about 25 minutes, right? So I get on the radio, you know, George III, George III, George III. This is the sailing vessel, Imagine 2, sailing vessel, Imagine 2, sailing vessel, Imagine 2, Channel 1-6. You know, Imagine 2, this is George III, go ahead. I said, hey, I've got a CPA of about two and a half miles in 25 minutes. <laughs> this, their skipper goes, what? He's like, you've got really good equipment. I don't even see you. I go, well, I can see you on our horizon. And we're going to be, you know, two and a half miles apart in about 22 minutes. He goes, I'm good with two and a half miles, Skipper. If you're good with two and a half miles, maintain your position. I'll maintain mine. Have a great sail. Okay. Fantastic. Why, why is there such, like, to me, I hear two and a half miles and you're like, I don't even care about you. But obviously... There's concern even at that distance. Why is that such a high level of concern to be aware of? Okay, so. It was at night for one. Well, it was, right. It was dusk, right. Um, and so my training, right, when I took a rapid radar course at school, we were always taught there's a mark. And the captain is giving instructions. I don't want that mark within two miles of our vessel. The reason for that is container ship is doing 21 knots an hour. We're sailing at six knots, right? Um, if there's an engine failure or something happens, that container ship is not going to move quickly, like a semi-truck loaded at 80,000 pounds doing 65 miles an hour on a rainy, wet road, you need space to move. Um, a sailboat is really hard to pick up on radar. Now, we had radar reflectors, but even then, it's really hard to pick up on radar. Radar reflects off metal. Wait, so radar. this is a container ship you were talking with? Right. We're talking oh, to a okay. container ship from Pesha, Hawaii. All right. All right. Right? Uh, um, right. So I didn't want them freaking out, suddenly going, oh, shit, there's a sail. <laughs> right? Right. So um, it's a courtesy of, hey, we're here. Well, right. and as I understand it, it's it's also a courtesy because as the smaller boat, the the bigger boat is required under maritime law to give way to them. And so you want them to be able to do that. No? no you mean is the that incorrect, Aaron? All right. So in maritime law, a sailboat sits at the top, towards the top of the pecking order. Power boats have to give way to a vessel under sail. I would say that the container ship is higher than the sailboat in this instance because their maneuverability is Just limited limited versus our maneuverability out on the ocean. And in an extreme emergency, we could have fired up our engine 
and motored away from them. So the courtesy was, yeah, I didn't want them to suddenly look up and see our sail, you know, because we were flying the spinnaker at the time. Um, didn't want them freaking out or suddenly there's a blip, you know, there's a mark on their radar. Oh shit. Where did that come from? Um, so we saw them, we called them and said, Hey, and later on as well, um, another Haitia Hawaii ship, um, we gave them the courtesy of just, Hey, we're out here. And they went, yeah, we're good. You know, and actually the second one said, all right, we are going to change our course. Continue. And we went. I got four quick questions. Yep. You said, so the weather conditions were overcast for like two and a half weeks. Correct. Then that's foggy or what is that? No, it's not foggy. It's just high clouds. High clouds. You're not seeing the sun or the stars. Not at all. Damn. All right. Is there anything in your journal that comes to mind as a peak highlight of this trip that you haven't mentioned? Peak highlight. Like you mentioned the pot of whales. I imagine that's one. Um, So like the very first night, just past Catalina, it's nighttime. And off in the distance, I see two white lights. And, you know, I'll do this like this. Um, So there's one higher than the other. And we're all looking at it. And I go, that's a tanker, and it's crossing our bow. And everybody's like, what? I go, that's a tanker, and they're about to cross our bow. I said, they're about five miles out. And sure enough, we bring it up on the radar, and it is a tanker ship. And they're just looking at me like, how? I go, the two white lights tell me that it's a tanker and that it's I know what direction it's moving just by those two white lights. And they're just looking like, so for me, that was kind of cool. You know, my education, being able to look at the radar with George III and understand our closest point of approach and how long it was going to take, being able to do that, um, learning, taking what I learned in school and being able to apply it to real life situations and go, okay, my instructors weren't just full of bullshit. This is real. <laughs> you know, this is real. Um, that was very cool. That was very cool. Um, hitting the dock in Hawaii. And and actually, before we even got there, as we were approaching Diamond Head, there was a motorboat that came out that had a sign that said, follow me. And on board that motorboat were a couple members of the yacht club that I belong to in Long Beach. One of them's an older gentleman that, you know, he and I had been talking about it for a long time. Um, his younger brother was supposed to be a part of our crew and had to bail out because of glaucoma. He couldn't see at night. Mm. And so Bruce, the older brother, did the Transpac race in 17 days. We wanted to fish, finish faster than Bruce for his younger brother, Roger. And we did it by an hour. <laughs> right? We beat Bruce by an hour. And so we were stoked for that. But then to see this other lady, Tracy, on board, um, she's a great spiritual person. Just seeing them, that they were there to greet us in Hawaii and then getting to the dock 
and seeing Grace on the dock and seeing all these other people there on the dock was just fantastic. You know, that was fantastic. Finishing the race for Larry was fantastic. That that was highlights. So. And, and what's that feeling like when you've been out to sea for two weeks and you get your first sighting of the big island? Uh, so I think the first island we saw was Maui. Okay. Uh, was not, was not, I thought it was the big island, but it was actually Maui. And it was just like, yeah, we did it. We did it. We're here. Right now, no matter what, if all shit hits the fan, we can turn on the engine and motor into any one of these islands. We're here. And the morning that we finished the race, um, we actually started the engine, didn't put it in gear. We just started the engine and it overheated. <laughs> right? So, we so you're in- allowed to start the engine as long as you don't engage it? Correct. Because you can use the engine to charge your batteries as well. Okay. So, so while we are finishing the race at the helm, Larry and his son, Justin, have the engine compartment opened up and the engine torn apart because they're, t- they're replacing the water impeller because boat engines are cooled by seawater generally. Um, so they're replacing the impeller. So what we think happened is that at the beginning of the race, when we were healed over so far, that air got into the system and ruined the impeller. So we had to replace the impeller so that when we got to the marina, we could drop the sails, start the engine, and just motor in. Um, how does the racing officials monitor whether you've engaged the engine or um, auto navigation? Is it a trust thing or are there ways to truly monitor that? So it is a trust thing. The engine is how many engine hours are you running? You know, what were your engine hours at the start of the race? What are your engine hours at the finish of the race? Wow. So that's pretty cool that that there's that kind of trust on such an important race. That's a, that speaks a lot about marining, you know, that that's the level people are operating at. Yeah. All right, we got one more question, but before we ask that, Mark, do you have anything else? Will you do it again? Absolutely. Absolutely. So they asked me, so one of the other members of the crew, a gentleman, his name's Bob. Um, I invited Bob to come along when Roger dropped out because of the glaucoma issue. I know Bob from the Arizona Yacht Club. And Bob is a which ASA. is funny as hell. <laughs> Bob's an ASA instructor, right? And he is a he's never sailed the Transpac, but he sailed Blue Water, you know, Caribbean races and things like that. So um, I was happy to have Bob on board. His nickname is By the Book Bob <laughs> because he is by the book. <laughs> um, he's an instructor, right? Um, he and I shared the hotel room in Hawaii. And so Saturday afternoon, I'm in bed relaxing, reading or whatever. And Bob walks into the 
room and goes, you want to hear something crazy? I go, what's crazy, Bob? He's all, you want to sail her back? And I was just like, wow. Yeah, yeah, I do. I just don't have four weeks that I could take off to do it. Because sailing back, we'd have to sail somewhere between San Francisco and the Oregon-Washington borders from Hawaii and then sail down the coast back to Long Beach. Um, and that's take about four weeks. I just don't have four weeks to do it. Um, told Bob yesterday, I just can't take the time off. And so he told Larry, you know what, Larry? Aaron can't make it. Not going to do it. If Aaron can't make it, hire somebody else. Wow. That speaks so, a lot about yourself. Right. So I, I think the fact that I gained Bob's trust and respect as a navigator and a helmsman, um, I feel proud of that. Right. I feel proud of that. At one point of the race, Larry mapped out two different, you know, directions to go. If we tack and go this way, we'll be at this longitude and latitude. And then, you know, or if we go this way, it's this longitude, latitude. And Larry looks at me and goes, can you give me distances based off long and lat? I went, Absolutely. Right. So I took what he did, broke it down into miles and nautical miles, did the math and said, this is how long it would take us if we go this way at this speed. This is how long it's going to take us if we go this way at this speed. And Bob happened to walk in. And I go, Bob, check my math. And Bob goes, yep, you're right. And I was like, damn, I actually learned something in school. I can navigate. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I think part for me as your familia um, to see that in three years, like, like I said at the beginning, you were, you were nothing. You were a landlubber and now yeah. you are respected mariner, respected by people who have been doing this for decades. Like what you yeah. accomplished in three years is something to be proud of. It's yeah. Fun. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. Three years ago, you know, would, would you ever have thought that I would sail from California to Hawaii on a 45 foot sailboat yeah. without ever turning on the engine or the autopilot? Not, right. Not in a competitive race, not yeah. in something that's calling for that level of, expertise of you know not just and mentally and as you and mark have pointed out the spiritual aspects the the characteristic of self that creates a crew that finishes something like the trans pack right right it reminds me a lot of things mark has done where he's got a towel and he talks about never throwing in the towel and there's it is. And I know, like I've heard some of Mark's stories. I think this is one of those life experiences that challenges you. Are you going to throw in the towel or not? Well, you can't. When you're on a sailboat halfway between Hawaii and San Francisco or L.A., 
doesn't matter. You can throw the towel, but it's not going to change anything. Well, you can, though. But even just turning on the engine and going, okay, let's take the easy route. And we know, you know, there's six boats that started out on the race and turned back. One, I think the last one was about three days into it. They were pretty far out to sea. So I will, I will tell you that, right, the fourth day, third day, fourth day, um, we heard a May Day on the radio, right? And so I don't know, you know, if your audience knows it or not, in radio, maritime radio, you have a security right? Secure day, secure day, secure day. That is just a warning. You know, I'm a tugboat leaving the berth with a barge, or there's a log floating at this location in the water. Watch out, right? Pon-pon. And a pon-pon is, hey, we have an emergency, but it's not life-threatening, right? Pon-pon, we've lost our engine or we've lost our steering. We need help. It's not an emergency. May Day is a life-threatening emergency. And so we're cruising. We're four days out. There's nothing around us. And the radio crackles, mayday, mayday, mayday. Now we all shut up, and we're listening to this mayday. And it was a boat saying, hey, there's two of us on board this boat, and we have one of our members has got a cut is bleeding profusely, right? And they're talking to Coast Guard San Diego and Coast Guard Los Angeles. And we get a call from Coast Guard Los Angeles saying, hey, you are the closest boat to this boat. And we're like, yeah, we have a nurse aboard. And they're all, can you get there? We're all, we're six hours away. So the decision was send a long-range helicopter out, take this person off the sailboat, and get the medical attention. And so I think that was one of the last boats to drop out of the race. Wow. Um, because they were two-handing it, and now they were down to you know one single person. We saw the helicopter coming back. It had gone to the boat. We saw the helicopter coming back, but yeah, I mean, the medical, you know, life happens. We were very fortunate. You know, we lost our spinnaker halyard. We lost our whisker pole. We ran out of water and had to make water, but we made it, you know, nothing, nothing stopped us from proceeding. Um, our biggest worry was we realized like in day 10 or day 11, our batteries were not charging correctly. We, we were running the generator more than we wanted to, to charge our batteries. And we were concerned about fuel. We were running out of fuel. And we didn't want to run out of fuel because we wanted to motor into the marina, not sail into the marina. Um, we were concerned about losing our batteries because then we'd lose all our navionics. And I will tell you that we did 
have a sextant on board the boat. Bob asked me if he should bring a sextant. And I said, yeah. And Greg, you know, um, the week before the race, I practiced almost every day taking sightings with that sextant. Just in case we lost our electronics, I'd be able to shoot and try to figure out where we were. Hard thing is, is we didn't see the moon until three days out from Hawaii. So be hard, you know, not seeing the sun or not seeing the moon to get a true bearing of where we were trying to use a sextant. I go back to, you know, Mark, well, the ancient mariners, holy shit, <laughs> you know, how did they do it? How did they do it? So that, you know, that was our biggest concern, I think, towards the end. Um, and we made it. We made it. Well, should we ask our final question? Yeah. Congratulations, Aaron, to you and the crew. Thank you. What a fabulous tale you have to tell. <laughs> yo, oh, yo. There's actually uh, two questions. Why don't you go with the, the main question after I ask this question? Aaron, my ties, triple sec or no triple sec? Um, no triple sec because it's too sweet. Right. That's what I thought. <laughs> salty. Um, the one it's salty. Well, so, the fruit juice is enough, right? Right. Fruit, right. fruit juice is enough. And the first Mai Tai they handed me before I even left the boat was in a pineapple. Right. They cut out, they cored the pineapple and the Mai Tai was in the pineapple. So. And so the the photo, this is not the question, but the photo I saw of you with the trophy, um, is that the trophy for you guys being the oldest to finish? Or was that like just you guys finished? Here's a trophy. No, no, that was the that was the oldest. We were the oldest average crew. That was the trophy for the oldest average crew. Um so for finishing, I I have a coin that I'll probably use flipping. Uh, for soccer games, when I officiate soccer games, I'll use it as a flipping coin. Um, sales or Burgie, you know, I'll tell the players call sale or Burgie and let it go. So I receive a transpect coin, um, received a crew member plaque for finishing the transpack and the invitation to join the transpack yacht club. All right. So for finishing, that's what you get. All right. Foo Fighters or Eminem? Oh, man. Yeah, see, they're two different genres, right? They're two different genres, and I have huge respect for both. I mean, the Who or Queen, right? Give me that. The Who or Queen. That's not the question, Aaron. Foo Fighters (laughs) or Eminem? Stay the course. Oh, I have such respect for both. <sighs> Depends on my mood. This morning was, I'd say, Eminem, but okay. um, but I have such respect for both Foo Fighters. Yeah, we're hoping they could do some kind of collab soon. That's our wish. Yeah. So just just along those lines, heard this morning on the radio because literally drove from Long Beach this morning up to Visalia, and if anybody knows, Visalia is between Bakersfield and Fresno. So coming into Visalia this morning on the radio, they were talking about Eminem and how at one point 
he heard Naz and, you know, these other, and he's like, yeah, there's no way I could ever be that good. I'm not going to be a rapper. I'm going to give it up. I got to do something else because I'll never be that good. And then he heard Naughty by Nature's album and went, yeah, there's just no way I can't be a rapper. I'm not that good. And look at what he's done. Thank God. Right? Thank God he didn't give up because, damn, right? That boy can rap. (laughs) Recording stopped.